Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This adage is stating what is often an observable fact, that a child usually mirrors the qualities and traits of their parents. Now, in some cases, those traits are passed down genetically. For example, if you know him, my son is, for better or for worse, the physically the spitting image of me. He would say he's the improvement on me, um, and he wouldn't be wrong. But this old saying isn't so much just talking about biology as it is about influence. If we think of the image of an apple dropping from a tree, we can imagine that that apple will still be somewhat close to the trunk of the tree. The apple will still be in reach of the tree. The apple is still under the tree's shadow or influence. In other words, this saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, speaks more to the qualities and traits that children learn from their parents. As children observe, as they listen to, as they mirror the speech and actions of their parents, the people with whom they spend and focus much of their time and energy, children become like them in how they think, in how they speak, in how they do life. And Jesus makes a similar point as he puts the finishing touch on the longest recorded sermon, his longest recorded sermon in the Gospel of Luke, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, but here in Luke it's known as the Sermon on the Plain. And we've been looking at this for the last few weeks, and now we're coming to its conclusion. And joining the image of trees and fruit, the heart and the mouth, and two different ways of building a house, Jesus is about to reveal how we can ensure that our words and actions, our lives as children of God, are emulating those of our Heavenly Father. You have those Bibles open or those phones or tablets, or you can just look at the screen. Luke chapter 6, let's hear what it says. Jesus said, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came... The torrent struck that house, but could not shake it, because it was well built. But the one who hears my word and does not put them into practice is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, a casual hearing of Jesus' conclusion to his sermon might lead us to perceive Jesus offering us a way of categorizing all people as either good or bad, foolish or wise. But something that we need to remember that we've been saying over these last few weeks is that the entirety of this whole teaching in Luke chapter 6, the, the sermon from start to finish, is directed by Jesus toward his disciples. 
not directed towards all people. It's directed towards his disciples, those who say they follow him. And having laid out up to this point some clear instructions about what living as the people of God's kingdom is all about, Jesus now ends his sermon with a litmus test for those who say they follow him to tell if, in fact, they are following his lead. And to his would-be followers, Jesus offers a simple metaphor that really leaves no room for ambiguity. It's this metaphor of a tree and its fruit. And it leaves no room for ambiguity because we know a tree is identified by what it produces, from what blossoms and blooms from its branches. The appearance of the fruit reveals the nature of the tree. I mean, if you were to walk around in Israel, as Jesus talks about, figs are indicative of a fig tree, whereas thorns are indicative of a thorn bush. If you were in Israel, no one would go, looking, go around looking for grapes from a vine that bore brambles. They would be looking for the visible evidence of grapes. And Jesus presents this common sense, self-evident principle from nature as serving as a parallel to those who follow him. What we produce... The fruit of our lives, the fruit of our character and our values, what we say and do indicates where, in what or whom we are rooted. If we profess to be a Christian, if we say we follow Jesus, then our mindset and our attitude, our words and our actions ought to bear a Christ-like flavor. To be even more specific... Given what Jesus has previously outlined in this sermon, what we looked at over the last few weeks, the fruit of a follower of Jesus ought to look and taste like loving our enemies. Loving our enemies, doing good towards praying for and blessing those who hate, who curse, who even mistreat us. The fruit of a follower of Jesus ought to look and taste like generously giving away whatever the Lord has resourced us with and not lending what God has given us and seeking repayment. The fruit of a follower of Jesus ought to look and taste like being merciful and forgiving rather than being judgmental and condemning toward others. The fruit of a follower of Jesus ought to look and taste like honestly facing our own ongoing brokenness, our own need for grace, before we presume to call attention to, to seek to address the flaws, the logs in the eyes of others. All of these practices that Jesus has laid out for us in this sermon reflect the goodness of God in Christ. This is how God engages us. And therefore, these practices, these attitudes, these mindsets, these ways of speaking and being constitute the good fruit that will naturally be born of those who follow Jesus, of those who live like Christ. Jesus reinforces the significance of this idea of rootedness, that living like this is about being rooted in him, in Christ, he, he reinforces this idea of rootedness as he joins the picture of, of a tree and its fruit with the association between the heart and the mouth. And what he's highlighting is a tree's fruit is not only due to the nature of the tree. The fruit's not only due to the nature of the tree, but it's also an outward expression of its inner being. It's an outward expression of its inner being. You know, one of the things, I don't know if you know this, that I really enjoy, enjoy doing recreationally is hiking. I like hiking. And over the course of the many hikes I've taken, something I've witnessed now and again is that a tree may look good. A tree may look healthy and strong on the outside, but in fact, the tree doesn't have much of a core. The tree doesn't have much of a heart. 
That is, internally, the tree is rotting on the inside. It's rotting on the inside due to drought. It's rotting on the inside perhaps due to disease. It's rotting on the inside because of infestation by an insect. And the suspect nature of the tree typically ends up being revealed by its splitting apart or its complete collapse, say, during a storm. Which also relates, by the way, to another point Jesus makes here, which we'll come to shortly. But for now, Jesus' point in juxtaposing trees and hearts is to underscore that good fruit comes not only from being a fruit tree, but good fruit comes from having good, strong, solid roots. The outward fruit we bear in our lives, in other words, is the visible, tangible expression of the condition and content of our hearts, of where we're rooted And the Bible proclaims this principle, by the way, repeatedly throughout its pages. The wisdom books of the Bible, for instance, say the Psalms or the Proverbs, state over and over again, it matters. It matters where and in what we're planted, we're rooted. If we're not rooted in the water of God's word and guidance, then we will slowly wither and fade away. And any fruit that we bear, if we're not rooted in the water of God's word, the soil of God's word, any fruit we bear will be minimal, it will be underdeveloped, and it will not be fulfilling. John the Baptist, when he arrived on the scene in the Gospel of Luke, do you remember? One of the things he said is he called everyone, when he arrived on the scene, he called everyone to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance, meaning fruit derived from coming back to our roots with the Lord. Jesus, beyond what he says here, Jesus will emphasize, yet again, it is out of whatever is in the heart that produces, that produces what, what one produces what is either good or evil. And Jesus will later add in the Gospel of John, as he speaks to his disciples in the upper room, that unless our hearts, unless our lives are rooted in him, Jesus will say quite bluntly, unless our hearts and our lives are rooted in him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. And that seems odd. We're like, well, we can do something. And what Jesus is basically saying is whatever we think is something is actually nothing. It's nothing. There's no sustaining. There's no lasting fruit in and through our lives if we're disconnected from our relationship with God. And this, this idea of being fruitless, being fruitless is counter. It's contrary both to our identity and the purpose for which we were all created. Because from the very beginning, going all the way back to the garden, the story of the Bible tells us that we have been created by God for fruitfulness. We've been created by God to experience, to reflect, and to fill all creation with the goodness and glory of our Creator. Bearing fruit is hardwired into our spiritual DNA. And even though our DNA has become corrupted, Even though our DNA, our spiritual DNA, continues to be hijacked by the disease, the infestation of sin, God came down to us in Christ, and through what he taught and modeled for us, through his willingness to take on the burden of our brokenness, to face and conquer the death that results from all our sin, Jesus redeemed us. Jesus reconciled us. Jesus restored us so that we can become fruitful so that we can bear and see and taste and share the good fruit that God always intended for us to cultivate in our lives together. That's the gospel. And if that's the gospel, why is it then, why is it that so many, in the lives of so many Christians, there's no fruit? Why are the lives of so many Christians not 
fruitful. If life with Jesus, life on the other side of Christ's resurrection, which we celebrated last week, is supposed to be, if it's promised to be budding and bursting with kingdom fruit, with what the Apostle Paul later will describe as the fruit of the Spirit, bursting and budding with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why are so many disciples of Christ lacking the fruit? Why are the lives and postures of so many Christians marked instead by fear, by worry, by frustration, bitterness, impatience, discontent, unkindness, impulse control problems, apathy, meanness, and even hatred toward others. If, this, if we were made to be fruitful, if we've been redeemed to be fruitful, why, where's the fruit? And one answer that's hard for us to hear, one answer that I know many of us are not going to want to hear, but it doesn't mean it's not true, one answer is our lives are not bearing the promised fruit of the kingdom, our lives are not seeing the promised fruit of the Spirit, because we want to be saved by Jesus, but we don't want to be changed by Christ. I want to say that again. We want to be saved by Jesus, but we don't want to be changed by Christ. I mean, we're fine. We're all good with Jesus taking us beyond death when we physically die. No problems. We're quite all right with Christ rescuing us when we declare a state of emergency in our lives. We're quite all right with Christ rescuing us when we wave the white flag, bailing us out when we get sick, when we get into trouble, when we find ourselves momentarily stuck but apart from these situations, when we physically die or when we declare a state of emergency, beyond these situations, for many of us, we aren't willing to have our lives changed by Christ. To have what we value, to have how we think, to have how we speak, how we engage others, for our world to be turned right side up. It's actually upside down. But we're so used to living upside down that we don't want Jesus to make it right side up. And this isn't my assessment or opinion, by the way. This isn't my assessment. This isn't just Pastor Chris saying, you know what the problem is? The problem is we want to be saved by Jesus, but we don't want to be changed by Christ. That's not my assessment alone. This is Jesus' diagnosis right here in this passage. Were you listening? This is what Jesus says as before his disciples, followers like us, Jesus asks out loud, why do you call me Lord Lord, and not do what I say. Which means, you are Lord. You are risen. You have saved us. You are the one. You are the Christ. But I'm not going to do anything you say. Jesus says, what's up with that? Jesus is calling out those who would profess to follow him by reflecting the disconnect between what we claim and how we functionally and practically live. And the thing is, is in the church, we, we tend to use the language of believing and following interchangeably. We use believing and following as being interchangeable. And truth be told, in one sense, there is no difference. Because if we truly believe in Jesus, then we would be following Jesus. Because believing, after all, is more than words. True belief is absolute trust, right? It's leaning into and living out of what we believe. The disconnect results, though, 
when we attempt to frame believing in Jesus in degrees rather than as an all-or-nothing expression of trust. Many of us believe in Jesus in degrees, but we are not willing to do an all-or-nothing expression of trust in Jesus. That's really hard for some of us to hear, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Some of us will say, we believe in who Jesus is. We believe Jesus is God. We believe Jesus is the Lord of all creation. We believe Jesus is the King of kings. Some of us will say, we believe in what Jesus did for us. We believe what Jesus did for us. That he died for all the world to forgive all our sins. We believe that Jesus was raised from the dead so that we might have eternal life. And yet, while we say we believe in who Jesus is, while we say we believe in what Jesus did for us, that doesn't mean we believe in what Jesus taught. That doesn't mean we believe that the kind of life Jesus modeled the way of being Jesus called and empowered us to live doesn't mean we believe that's a requirement for being a Christian, for being a follower of Jesus. And, and part of the reason why this has kind of gotten stuck, in, especially in the Protestant church, of this idea of, well, I don't necessarily need to believe that to be a Christian, is because we've created this imbalance. It was a corrective at one time, but we've created this imbalance in how we speak teach and share the gospel. This imbalance comes from an overemphasis in the church on teaching that we are saved by grace, the faith and work of Christ alone. We are not saved by anything we do or don't do. An overemphasis on this and an underemphasis on our responsibility to bear witness to the grace, faith, and work of Christ, not just through what we say, but in how we live. Now, I want to be clear. While it's true that nothing we do or don't do saves us, there is also no such thing as a disciple who's called to believe in Jesus for salvation but not do anything as a result of that salvation. What we are called to do in response to the salvation that Jesus extends to us is not to pay God back. Salvation isn't a loan from God that we're trying to pay back. What we're supposed to do in response to the salvation Jesus extends to us is not to do our part. It's not that God kind of does most of it and then we have to fill in the rest in order to be saved. No, what we are called to do in response to the salvation Jesus extends to us is to become witnesses. Witnesses. To reflect, to share, to bear the fruit that naturally comes from being rescued, from being redeemed, from being reconciled, from being restored, from being resurrected and brought back to life. To bear the fruit that supernaturally comes from the Spirit, both working in and through us. And that fruit, again, will look like, will taste to others like what Jesus taught, what Jesus modeled for us. Beloved, Jesus doesn't offer us good advice that we can choose to take or leave. But when we get past salvation when we die, when we get past the cross and the resurrection, many of us comb through the Gospels as if we can pick and choose. Jesus doesn't give us good advice that we can choose to take or leave. Jesus again and again commands us to follow his lead, to learn and grow in thinking speaking and acting like him in becoming Christ-like. Talking about grace 
and we all love to talk about grace, talking about grace does not negate living graciously. We talk about grace, but we don't live graciously, and we don't believe in grace. Speaking of love and mercy, and we all love to talk about the love and mercy of God, but speaking of love and mercy has to be matched by acting in love and with mercy toward others. If we don't act lovingly, if we don't act with mercy towards others, we don't believe in the love and mercy of God. Confessing Christ without obeying Christ not only leaves us fruitless, but confessing Christ without obeying Christ leads to our continual frustration and the eventual collapse of our lives. And Jesus underscores this with one final graphic picture where he extends a caution. He comes right out and says it, a warning to those who profess to believe in him but do not follow his lead. He presents two images, right? Two houses are being constructed. One house is built on a foundation, on the rock. The other house is built without any foundation. And we may not know much about building and construction, but intuitively we understand the importance of a solid foundation upon which everything else gets built upon. I mean, in our lives, We've witnessed on the news, or maybe even in our circles of community, we've witnessed those who've built their homes on less than ideal foundations. On the sides of steep hills, below sea level on floodplains, or on top of landfills, only to later watch in despair as their house succumbs to a fire, an earthquake, or a heavy storm. And Jesus is tapping in to our awareness of such preventable tragedies That building a home without a good foundation is dangerous in order to warn us of how building our lives without a good foundation is even more dangerous. I mean, while it's bad enough to lose your house, it's even worse to lose your life. To completely miss out on the full, abundant, and eternal life that Jesus extends to us. And again, believing in Christ without following Christ leads us to treat Jesus like a good luck charm. To treat Jesus like an insurance policy. Someone we look to in an emergency, but not someone upon whom we build the foundation of our lives. Believing in Christ without following Christ can tempt us to build our lives on another foundation other than Jesus. To live life based on our own rules, to to operate according to our own values, to do things our way instead of the way of Jesus. And when we give in to that temptation to build on any other foundation than Christ, we put ourselves, understand this church, we put ourselves right back to where we started before Jesus came into our lives. We put ourselves right back to where we started, positioning ourselves in opposition to God, choosing to separate ourselves from Christ, Despite whatever we may say, despite whatever we may say we believe, we put ourselves right back where we started, embracing and celebrating our sin instead of repenting and living and building out of the forgiveness we have been given. Now, we may ask ourselves, well, how do we know that? I mean, I, God, I, gosh, I don't want to end up in that situation. How do we know if we're end, we have ended up right back where we've started in our relationship with Christ? How do we know that we're saying we believe in Jesus, but in truth we're not actually following Christ? Jesus has now given us two indicators. How do you know? 
Because there's going to be no good fruit in your life. You're going to be a Christian, but you're going to say, I don't have any fruit. I don't know this fruit of which you speak. I don't feel love. I don't feel joy. I don't feel peace. I don't feel self-control, faithfulness. No, I have all the opposite things. There's no fruit. Well, then maybe there's no root. And Jesus gave a second, it gives us a second indicator as well. You're going to know that you're right back where you started in your relationship with Jesus. You're going to know that you say you believe in Jesus, but you're not following. You're going to know, second indicator, because when the bad weather comes, and the bad weather always comes, your life will not be able to endure and come through the storm. Your life will fall apart. And when your life falls apart, you realize that you've been building on some other foundation than Jesus Christ. When we plant and root our lives elsewhere, apart from Jesus, not only will we lack any meaningful fruit in our lives, but when the inevitable and unavoidable storms, the challenges of this life come, our lives will fall apart. Something worth noticing here is Jesus says, if we're not building our life on him, we're building without a foundation. Did you catch that? We're building without a foundation. Now, we might push back against this saying, well, we might, we're not building, we might build on a different foundation, but we're not building on no foundation. You know, if it, the foundation doesn't endure, we might say it was a weak foundation, but we wouldn't say it wasn't any foundation. But the truth is, if the foundation, when tested, doesn't serve its purpose, then it's proven itself to be not a proper foundation at all. And beloved, hear this. The kingdoms, the houses, the homes, the lives we attempt to build apart from God never go the distance. Building a house without a foundation is building a temporary dwelling. It offers the illusion of stability and permanence, but in the end, its vulnerability and incompleteness will be exposed. And so it is for a life apart from Christ. Initially, perhaps for a, while, a long while even, our lives might seem fine building on another foundation other than Jesus. You know, it's always sunny, blue skies. Yeah, there's a little rain here and there. Some winds that might pick up now and again, but no worries, right? But then, when the storms come that don't pass so quickly, when the tornadoes touch down, the hurricanes come, the earthquakes shake, that unsettle, that maybe even fracture our lives, the tempests and disasters of a broken creation, sometimes literal, physical downpours of nature, but more often than not, the adversities of illness, of aging, the loss of a job, financial or material crisis, separation, divorce, the death of a loved one, conflict, war, or some other unforeseen trauma. When those, those storms come, we will struggle greatly. We will lose our bearing. We will become swallowed up by chaos and fear. We will not be able to see anything but darkness and death. Yet, even in that moment, and yet, even in that moment, just like with the disciples on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, do you remember? And yet, even in that moment, Jesus will still be there in the eye of the storm, able and willing to silence the wind, to calm the waves, and lead us through to the other side. 
But the invitation, not just the challenge here, the invitation of Jesus is that it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to let it get that far. Don't misunderstand me. Pain, suffering, and losses are part and parcel of living in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. A world that's being remade, but a world that's still a work in progress. Following Jesus, building our lives on Christ, is not some magic talisman for altogether avoiding the storms of this life. Both houses experience the storm. Things, the things that can go wrong, the things that will go badly, the things that hurt and scar us happen to everyone. The difference is following Jesus is what will get us through those storms. Through those experiences of pain, suffering, and loss. Building our lives on the foundation of Christ ensures that when those storms come, failure will not be final. That good can come out of evil. That justice will be done. That death will not get the last word. That our house, our home, our life with God will not fall apart. Jesus is always with us and for us, offering us the love, the grace, the hope we need to get through the hardest of times. Through the word and the spirit, Christ extends to us the gift of faith, but that seed of faith needs to be planted in our lives. We have to allow that seed of faith to take root in our lives, to become the foundation that we build our lives upon And we build upon that foundation. We nurture that seed of faith by not just believing in Jesus, but by following Christ. By allowing Jesus to change us from the inside out. By allowing Jesus to change us from the inside out. I'm repeating that sentence because there is yet another reason why we don't see the fruit of the kingdom, the fruit of the Spirit flourishing in our lives. Sometimes it's because we, want to, we say we want to believe in Jesus, but we don't want to be changed in Christ. We've covered that. But sometimes we aren't experiencing the fruit because we're trying to change ourselves rather than allowing Jesus to change us. We're trying to change ourselves. I don't know your story. I know some of your stories, parts of them, but I don't know everybody's story here. I don't know your journey with Jesus. But when I, when I first began not just to believe but to follow Christ, I don't know if you can relate to this, but when I first began not just to believe, but to follow Christ, I thought I had to keep up with Jesus. Hearing that Jesus is on the move, working and moving ahead of me in our lives and in our world, I internalized that I needed to keep pace with Jesus. And so, in this pivotal moment when I was growing in my faith, so, so, so to speak, as I learned more about reading and studying the Bible, as I learned more about how to pray, as I learned about giving my time, my talent, and my treasure, as I learned about practicing the Sabbath, as I learned about being a part of the church, as I learned about serving others in need and sharing my faith, I viewed all of these things as things I needed to do to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to reflect the kingdom of God Through all of these tasks, I tried to change myself to be more like Jesus. These were the things I needed to do to keep up with Christ. But here's the thing. 
I was so consumed with doing these things or not doing these things as tasks to be accomplished that I never experienced any fruit. I never experienced any fruit. All I kept experiencing was frustration, was guilt, was shame. My rhythm, my relationship with Jesus had these wild swings, right? These wild swings from being on fire and going for it for Jesus to finding myself exhausted, burnt out, and honestly not wanting to have much to do with Jesus. Nothing about me was changing, even as I tried harder to change myself for Christ. It was maddening. Maddening. But that's what I thought the Christian life was. And then one day, after yet another bout, a season of equating following Jesus as doing stuff for Christ, as I was completely spent yet again and empty in terms of my own ideas, my own effort and energy, as I labored to read my Bible yet again, the Holy Spirit enabled me to see something I had never discovered before on my own. If we step back, if we step back and look, many of the biblical passages about fruitfulness, especially the warnings in the Gospels like this one, particularly to those who think they are following God, people like the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, and so on, if we step back and look at the many of the biblical passages about fruit, fruitfulness, especially the warnings in the Gospels, these passages caution against the fruit of self-effort, of trying to change ourselves for God. You see, when we make ourselves the change agent in our relationship with God, we end up fixating on what we're doing or not doing, rather than paying attention to what God is doing. We end up turning fruitfulness, by the way, into a fruitless competition with others. Where, it's, where that competition, that pursuit of fruitfulness is either a source of pride, of I'm better than they are, or envy, why can't I keep up with them? Why don't I measure up to them? We either puff ourselves up with a sense of superiority or we remain haunted by a continued sense of inferiority. So trying to change ourselves to make ourselves fruitful actually leads us farther from the Lord rather than closer to God. It results in us going through the motions of a religion without experiencing any meaningful relationship with the Lord or with others. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that some of you sitting here know more about going through the motions of a religion than you do about a relationship with a God who wants to know you and change. Jesus is the change agent. We don't. We, we can't change ourselves. But through the word and the spirit, Christ can and will transform us. Jesus is the one who brings about fruitfulness in our lives. To help you, think about a fruit tree, okay? Think about a fruit tree. Let's say uh, a lime tree, okay? Picture a lime tree. No matter how hard it may try, the tree cannot push and prod its limes to bud, blossom, and grow any faster than they were meant to grow. 
Rightly understood, the fruit of the tree doesn't come from the tree's efforts. The tree's only job, if we want to talk in that language, the tree's only job is to stay planted in the ground, draw water and nutrients from the soil, and receive sunshine. The fruit then comes naturally. The tree moves. The tree moves and grows, extending its roots and its branches as it continues to rely on the water, the soil, and the sunshine. A fruit tree doesn't struggle to produce fruit. Producing fruit is its nature. And likewise, the fruit of the Spirit flows naturally from a transformed heart and mind. Yes, in following him, Christ wants us to bear fruit. Jesus promises us as his followers, we will bear much fruit, fruit that will last. But here it is. Christ takes responsibility for providing all we need to be fruitful. Producing fruit requires action. But it is not the action of frenzied activity, trying to change ourselves for Jesus. No, Jesus changes us. Jesus cultivates the fruit of our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. The action required by us, like the action of the tree, is to abide. To abide, to rely on and draw from the water, the soil, the oxygen, the light of God's Word and Spirit, staying rooted, building upon the foundation of the relationship that Christ offers to us. All those things I was trying to do, All those things I was trying to do as religious tasks became different when I stopped trying to use them to change myself for Jesus. Because when Jesus becomes the change agent, reading and studying the Bible, prayer, lifting our voice in praise, honoring the Sabbath, seeking to be generous and hospitable, serving others, sharing our faith, when Jesus becomes the change agent, those are no longer religious tasks we're doing to change ourselves. They become practices, ways to play, practices that help us to abide in Christ and stay connected to him. Rather than the ends, they become the means by which I live in Christ and Christ lives in me. Following Jesus is not entirely passive, however. In John's gospel, Jesus assures us as we regularly abide in his way, his truth, his life, the harvest of our lives will be abundant. Like a fruit tree, we will move We will extend our branches. We will deepen our roots. And from learning and knowing what God desires, we will offer fruit. Fruit that looks and tastes like the character of Christ to others. My friends, the close of Jesus' sermon is not about becoming a Christian. The close of Jesus' sermon here in Luke chapter 6 is about living as a Christian. And the very word Christian, in case you missed it, the very word Christian doesn't mean being an admirer of Jesus. The very word Christian doesn't mean being a recipient of Christ's blessings. The very word Christian doesn't even mean one who believes in Christ. The word Christian means follower of Jesus. Believing in Christ is only the beginning of a commitment, a daily response of submission, of abiding in Christ, learning from the foundation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, being shaped and changed by the person and spirit of Christ, and bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. 
True fruitfulness isn't putting on a show. It isn't trying to change ourselves. True fruitfulness is a lifelong expression of, again, that seed of the gift of faith taking root in our hearts and being nurtured and cultivated by a gracious and loving God. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Thank you.